This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Katie Balls and I'm joined by Isabel Hardman and James Forsyth. Now, tomorrow, voters go to the polls in the local elections. And while much of the focus has been on Boris Johnson's position and whether the blue wall will crumble or whether there be enough gains or at least holding the position in the red wall to keep him safe, we could be heading for an upset for the Conservatives in Scotland. James, there's a poll that's projected that Scottish Labour will actually be the second biggest party. Can you talk us through the factors going on there? So... Douglas Ross, the leader of the Scottish Tories, has had a very difficult time recently, I think, to put it mildly. When some of these initial Partygate revelations came out, Douglas Ross came out and said that Boris Johnson should resign. I think he thought that the uh, 54 letters to create a vote of confidence were on their way in and he was going to position himself ahead of that. Boris Johnson is obviously not popular in Scotland. The letters then didn't come. Then you had the war in Ukraine. And Douglas Ross had to say, well, actually, no, I now don't want the Prime Minister to go. And I think it's been a very difficult situation for him. And the latest polling in Scotland suggests that in the council elections that will take place across Scotland, Labour will become second. And so the Tories will lose their claim to be the kind of union, the main unionist opposition to the SNP. And so I think that this... Is, has the potential to start changing Scottish politics, especially if the national political picture begins to look more favourable for Labour. Because I think that will give Labour two arguments when it comes to the next Westminster election in Scotland. One is, you know, look, the SNP can't form a government at Westminster. Labour can. And I think it will also, the prospects of a Labour government at Westminster will allow them to reach out to some of those Scottish voters who, who don't actually have a firm position on the constitutional question, that, that, that kind of middle third of a Scottish electorate, and say, you know, look, if you are fed up with everyone in Scotland only talking about the constitution as a political issue, why don't you vote for Labour? We can form a government at Westminster and that can lead to kind of social policy changes that will, that will affect uh, the whole of the UK. Isabel, you're on the ground in Scotland. What's your sense of things? Well, it's interesting that Scottish Labour do look as though they are finally starting to do well again. About this time last year, I interviewed Anna Sawa during the Scottish parliamentary election campaign. And he told me what his aims were as Scottish Labour leader. And they were survival, relevance, credible opposition, credible alternative. And he felt that in that campaign he'd be able to complete the first three of those four. And then Credible Alternative uh, was the the biggest long-term challenge for Scottish Labour to come back to being relevant as as a potential party in government in Holyrood. And as James has said, and as we've said on previous podcasts, there has been a recognition within Scottish political circles that the Scottish Tories may reach their high watermark that you can in terms of the unionist vote you can only go so far with the Scottish Conservatives. Douglas Ross has certainly possibly made that a high watermark a little bit lower recently particularly with his flip-flopping over Boris Johnson and so the momentum is still with Scottish Labour in this campaign. In terms of the SNP campaign I drove past the big battle bus with Nicola Sturgeon plastered all over it in Edinburgh at the weekend actually and um, they're still putting Nicola Sturgeon at the the front and centre of 
uh, a lot of their campaign leaflets. I've got a local campaign leaflet. I live in West Lothian. I've got a local campaign leaflet from the SNP in West Lothian here, which doesn't mention independence. It's all about local issues and uh, house building and childcare and, and the sort of things that, that I know do get discussed a lot in, in our village. But one of the really striking things I've noticed in terms of their party political broadcasts and in terms of their air war is just the focus they have on the Tories. Even though you've got Scottish Labour trying to present, as Anna Sawa says, that credible alternative, actually for them, the Conservatives are such a useful campaigning tool up here. And so I was watching a PPB recently by the SNP. They didn't really talk very much about what they've been doing uh, in government, whether that's at Holyrood or whether that's in uh, local councils. It was just all about the Tories, all about the Westminster Tories. And this has long been the case in Scotland, but Boris Johnson is an asset in Scotland, but not for his own party. He's an asset for the SNP. Now, in other news, when it comes to the government's plan for the cost of living crisis, we've had some advice this morning from the Environment Secretary, George Eustace. He has said buy value brands to cope with the cost of living crisis. Isabel, do you think that's a particularly useful suggestion? I think the phrase teaching your grandma to suck eggs was possibly invented for this piece of advice or teaching your grandma to sort of Tesco value eggs in in this instance. I mean, the idea that people who are struggling with the cost of living haven't thought about going to the cheapest supermarket brand already is quite laughable, particularly when you've had examples of people going much further than that. Elsie, the pensioner who was riding the buses because she couldn't afford to heat her home. There have been examples from Citizens Advice of people who've been using candles to cook baked beans. I suspect they weren't Tesco finest baked beans when they were trying to do that. So it doesn't help with the impression that there is a huge cognitive disconnect in Westminster over this. And actually, when it comes to these own brands, uh, there's been some really interesting campaigning from Jack Monroe, who uh, does a lot on food poverty. And she pointed out recently that the increase of these basic value uh, items is much greater than the increase in food prices uh, more generally. And some supermarkets have, have reduced the prices of their own brand ranges uh, in response to that. I think Asda was one of the ones that did that. But but actually, the, the idea that everything's going to be OK, just if you take this one simple step, just it doesn't help diminish this narrative that opposition parties are, are, are building about the Tories not really having a clue. Again, the line from Rishi Sunak that it was silly to talk about trying to reduce bills further. Now, that's very easy to caricature, but just don't give your opponents the opportunity to use those lines in caricatures. And I'm sure we will come again to Boris Johnson saying that the government needs to do more on the cost of living just to try to reassure voters that that ministers do get it. And just finally, James, after Macron secured re-election, there was lots of talk from supporters of Boris Johnson. This heralded a reset in relations between the UK and France. And now the political rhetoric that was required for an election was gone. They could really get down to business and perhaps start the relationship afresh. How's that going? Well, I think it's very telling that, that Emmanuel Macron has had a conversation with Vladimir Putin since being re-elected, but not Boris Johnson. Now, I, I mean, I mean, I thought the idea that everything would get better after French elections was was a fundamental misreading. You know, this idea that Macron was only bashing Liberals for electoral advantage. You know, the fact is, he doesn't like Boris Johnson. 
On the small boats issue, there is a fundamental problem that the French will never care as much about people leaving its territory as, as Britain will about people arriving in it. And then on the Northern Ireland Protocol, Macron believes this. Macron believes that the British must be made to stick to the letter of the deal that they signed, but anything else would set a terrible precedent for Anglo-French relations. But I also think that there is a requirement on Emmanuel Macron and Boris Johnson to both to get on with each other, whatever they think of each other, because they, have, they should respect the office. France and Britain are the two main military powers in Europe. There is currently a war in Europe because Russia has invaded a sovereign state in Ukraine. You are currently going to have to have Sweden and Finland, who are likely to apply to join NATO but aren't currently members, offered some unilateral guarantees because we've brought in under the, the, under the British and American, uh, and hopefully French too, nuclear umbrellas in the process from them applying to join NATO and joining NATO. And the idea that, that it's sensible in this situation for Macron to be refusing to pick up the phone to Johnson, this is just Jean. You know, they, they both need to accept that the requirements of their office and the moment need them to have a constructive relationship, whatever they think of each other. Thank you, James. Thank you, Isabel. And thank you for listening.